Hello and welcome to Rule of Law Talk. My name is Kilian Dory. I am Senior Program Associate for Engagement at the World Justice Project and I will be your host for today's session. As the world continues to deal with the consequences of COVID-19, the World Justice Project has embarked on a multidisciplinary initiative to better understand the relationship between public health and the rule of law. You can check out our new series, The Twin Crises of Public Health and the Rule of Law, at www.worldjusticeproject.org. Today's topic will focus on how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected indigenous communities in the United States and abroad, and what this additional pressure on countries' rule of law systems means for them. What are some of the particular challenges that these native communities face, for example, in accessing justice? But also, what are some of the good examples being developed for building back better and overcoming this pandemic and legacies of injustice as well? Joining me to help us discuss these questions are Nicole Nelson, Executive Director of the Alaska Legal Services Corporation, and Walter Flores, Executive Director of the Center for the Study of Equity and Governance in Health Systems, or CEGSS, in Guatemala. Nicole and Walter have both been working on the intersection of access to public health and indigenous communities for years. Nicole lives in Alaska, where she leads the Partnership for Native Health, an innovative project using legal empowerment and education as a tool to improve the health and safety of tribal members. The initiative was one of the five winning projects of the World Justice Project's World Justice Challenge in 2019. And Walter has worked in more than 30 countries spanning Latin America, Africa, Asia and Europe on the intersection between access to health and indigenous populations, legal empowerment and community participation. So, Nicole Walter, welcome to Rule of Law Talk. I'm glad to hear that both of you are healthy, first of all, and thank you again for joining me for this conversation. Um, I would like to start things off by asking each of you to give us a brief overview of your work. So, Nicole, maybe you could start with an overview of the Native Health Project's objectives and impact and the work that Alaska Legal Services Corporation does more broadly. Sure, thanks Killian. Um, well, first I think it might make sense to give a little bit of context to um, the area that I live in. Um, so I live in Anchorage, Alaska, and for those of you who don't know, and I think it's important to understand the scope of the project, the um, how um, big Alaska is. So Alaska is the biggest state in the continental US, and it is, um, you know, it is three times, um, it is bigger than the next three largest states combined, um, California, Montana, and Texas. And so we have this huge um, space, land area, and we also have a very low population density. And so there are only about 750,000 Alaska, Alaskans who live in the state, and they are not evenly dispersed across this vast geographic expanse. Um, about half of the 750,000 people reside in Anchorage, which is the city that I live in. Um, and um, then there are a couple of other sort of smaller cities, Fairbanks and Juneau and Kenai and the Matsu, where a lot of other um, Alaskans live. But in addition to that, there are um, smaller remote villages and um, hub communities that are dotted across uh, Alaska um, that are home to um, mostly an indigenous population, Alaska native population. And these smaller communities 
can range anywhere from a hundred people to maybe a thousand. And they are not connected to the road system. Most of Alaska is, is not road connected. So to reach these communities, um, somebody would need to fly in or they would need to um, take a snow machine in the winter when there's snow or a boat. And so I think that's important just to understand the context of the world that this project developed in so that we understand why the solutions we came to um, grew up in this area. Um, and so my work at Alaska Legal Services, we are a legal aid provider and we've been doing this work for 50 years. And as a legal, civil legal aid provider, we provide free help to people who can't afford a lawyer. And we also provide help to uh, smaller tribes um, who can't afford access to a lawyer also in helping them enforce their civil right, civil legal needs. And so one of the big challenges that we have had and when we set about designing this project was the huge justice gap. The, the fact of the matter is that in Alaska, as in the rest of the US, that most people who need help um, with a civil legal need are unable to um, do so because they can't access a lawyer. They can't afford a lawyer and lawyers aren't available to help them for that purpose. And it's on really important civil legal needs like avoiding being evicted, losing your housing, um, protection from domestic violence, or accessing public benefits. And so I call this the, the civil justice gap. And so we were setting about in Alaska trying to um, from Alaska Legal Services as a means to try to, you know, do something to cure the civil justice gap and to do our part in that way. Another important thing to understand about Alaska is uh, really um, which frames our work. Alaska is home to 229 indigenous tribes um, and we and about 18% of our population is indigenous. So at that we are the most proudly, we would say the most indigenous state in the, in the US. Um, and so that's the background for this work. When we set up across, um, set about sort of trying to come up with a project to cure the civil justice gap, we wanted to do some mapping to figure out what resources our communities have and our, our rural communities and where we were reaching out to people and where we were missing, where the gaps were. And so as we map things out, we learned a couple of things. First off, um, we learned that Alaska Legal Services was the, the most referred to legal entity in the state um, for when people had an unmet legal need, we surveyed lots of folks and they said, yeah, we refer the people to Alaska Legal Services. And we were really proud of that. But the fact of the matter is that we were having to turn away one person for everyone that we accepted. And that was pretty devastating for us. Um, we also wanted to map out where the resources were. And we learned that through our, our mapping process that, and this really came as no surprise to us, that um, most of the lawyers in the court system were um, were stacked out along the major cities that they were, that they were um, time bound, that they were not time bound, but they, that most of the lawyers were in the cities or the more densely populated areas, as were the court systems and most of the other infrastructure of our state. And so this left huge gaps in resources 
people being able to access um, our services who were in the most remote and rural areas. And so in trying to figure out, we um, mapping out what resources existed in those communities that we might be able to leverage um, infrastructure, we overlaid um, our, through our mapping, we found out that most of our very remote rural communities had um, access to healthcare providers. And so there was a community health aid network and that our healthcare um, network in Alaska that was predominantly operated through our Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, our tribally operated healthcare center, had the densest, um, most robust infrastructure within the state. And so we decided that we would seek out um, our tribal partners in who, um, were operating the Alaska Native Tribal Healthcare System to see if they were interested in partnering with us to um, cure the civil justice gap. And so, one of the questions that sometimes comes up is, well, why would the healthcare um, industry, why would the healthcare providers be interested in curing the civil justice gap? And one of the things we learned was that um, from our our healthcare partners, that 60% of a patient's health is determined by um, social, environmental, and behavioral health factors. So those things that are not related to the healthcare that they receive. And in the healthcare field, um, this is referred to as social determinants of health. When we looked at what those social determinants of health were, we realized that there's a great connection between the two um, of what we call health-harming legal needs and the social determinants of health. So this is homelessness, access to, um, food supports, food security, um, special education services, um, healthcare coverage, and um, you know, access to protection from domestic violence. And so at this point, we realized that there was commonality between our, our goals, between the healthcare system and our, the aim of curing the civil justice gap. And so we set about with our, um, the partners from the Alaskan tribal healthcare system to develop a project where we would embed attorneys um, in the hospitals and hub communities throughout Alaska. So one thing that we learned through this project, the first step of that project, was um, our healthcare partners had really done some great and innovative work in trying to deliver the um, healthcare to very remote and rural locations. And as part of this, they were training uh, mid-level healthcare practitioners who were community-based and culturally appropriate um, and were placed in each of these community, each rural and remote community. And we um, wanted to try to replicate that for the practice of law so that we would have mid-level legal extenders um, that would be placed in communities that would already be from the community. And we could train them to screen and surface unmet civil legal needs and connect them either with a lawyer or um, who is in a hub community or help them address the legal needs in the communities to that end. So we then partnered with um, also a tribally operated um, university to develop uh, training modules to train non-lawyers um, about unmet civil legal needs and how to address them. And with the idea that we would empower uh, communities, very remote, 
communities to understand what their rights are in certain areas and to um, access them. So that's essentially what the, our, our project is. And so we've been working on that for the last uh, several years in conjunction with um, uh, Alaska's tribally operated um, healthcare, um, healthcare partners. That's great. Thank you so much for this overview, Nicole. And I think it speaks a lot to the work that you've been developing, uh, Walter. Um, you know, you have such an extensive uh, background working on indigenous communities and access to health all over the world. But I wanted to know more about the work that you're doing with your center in Guatemala, working with community defenders, and how that inscribes itself in your experience working on health systems and policy. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation into the podcast. So during the first part of my career, I worked in academia, mostly in Europe and the U.S., and also I did international development work. Uh, while I was in academia, I did research uh, demonstrating equity gaps and exclusion of marginalized people in different countries. I published and presented the findings of research to national authorities with the expectation that things are going to change because I was helping to produce evidence of those gaps. But in most countries I work, things didn't change despite producing this uh, rigorous evidence. Uh, then I, I work for international cooperation agencies uh, providing funding and advising countries on access to health for indigenous populations and also the marginalized populations. And I could see some changes there in international cooperation. When we were funding a program and providing technical assistance, I, I could see some changes, but those changes were immediately uh, stopped once the international funding finished. So those changes were not uh, sustainable. It seemed to me like a, no one in those countries were interested to continue with those changes once the external money finished. So it became very clear to me that uh, changes would not occur at the top policy and decision-making level, that changes for marginalized people, this was not an issue of generating evidence or knowledge, and that the lack of action was really the result of power relations that have historically excluded indigenous and other marginalized population. So it was clear to me that something different had to be done. And after that, I took the radical decision of going back to Guatemala after being away for so many years. And I established this small organization that uh, with the idea of doing research and advocacy, but working directly together with grassroots indigenous organizations with the intention to contribute to promote uh, social change and access to help from, from the bottom up. Instead of continuing working uh, only at the top, thinking that uh, national policy will change things, I thought that we had to do it from the bottom up and eventually we come to reach to the, to the top. So this is more organization that I established when I returned to Guatemala. The idea was not to become an academic research organization, but to become a, a, an ally of grassroots organization, because the issue, as I just said, was of power relations, then we need to be very clear all the time about that. And our research, our advocacy, and our capacity building had to contribute to enhance the power 
of indigenous organizations. So as a result of that, we do research together with indigenous communities. We do participatory action research. We facilitate the legal empowerment of, of community leaders and community defenders, but we also provide subsidy for food and transport. So the indigenous leaders themselves travel to the provincial capitals and the national capital to meet up and negotiate the solution of access to health problems with authorities. So all of us of the organization, we are allies, but we are in the back and we facilitate all the process for religious leaders to become empowered in this process. Uh, it has been almost 12 years since we started this, this journey and, and we have now an interdisciplinary team and half of them are indigenous uh, professionals themselves that are uh, working on this uh, model of, of work, which is based on legal empowerment and, and confronting this issue of historical power relations with the idea of improving access to health and human rights. That's great. Thank you for that overview, Walter. Um, it seems like both of your works are quite complementary and it's, it's interesting to see your perspective, Walter, of going to the international level, seeing how things aren't working there and coming back to the local level and saying, okay, this is an issue of putting the power in the grassroots actors and, and, and elevating their voices and making them be on the, on the, on the front of the scene. Uh, but I wanted to turn now to how the COVID-19 situation has been affecting both of your projects and both of your initiatives. Uh, and maybe we can start with you, Nicole. Um, we know that the United States response to the crisis has been disjointed, to put it lightly. And we've seen numbers of infections skyrocket around the country. Your project focuses on how indigenous populations in Alaska and in the United States experience some of the greatest health inequalities. But how has the pandemic exacerbated these inequalities and how has it affected the development of your project? Sure. That's a great question. And, and thanks so much for that. Um, one thing I just want to say um, in talking about this is that my experience, um, you know, I can only speak from the experience that um, I have in addressing um, the pandemic from um, the perspective of Alaska. Um, and so one of the things that, um, as you mentioned before, uh, indigenous communities, why we started this project both in Alaska and in the lower 48, um, really related to the health inequalities that existed within our indigenous communities. And those um, health inequalities inequalities, have, it's important to remember, I think that they pre-existed the pandemic for reasons that are related to colonialism and systemic racism and, um, and really resource starving of indigenous communities. And, you know, none of that has gotten better during the, this pandemic. Um, and so that sort of plays out in a couple of ways. First off, um, when you think of at least in Alaska, some of our um, most remote communities um, lack um, access to some really basic infrastructure that um, you know is common throughout most of the lower 48. Um, and so one of those things, like if you could think about um, in our smaller communities, it's it doesn't they most of our rural and remote communities don't have a local hospital, and so if 
you know, having access to a hospital or ventilators or ICU uh, capacity on a local basis is, is not available. And so oftentimes that requiring that level of care is going to require you to get on a plane, which also puts you at your health at risk and the risk of people flying the plane or also traveling um, on the plane as well. So that's just one example of how, um, you know, people are more at risk. And that's not unique only to um, Alaska. On the Navajo Nation, which is in the Four Corners area um, in the southwestern United States, there healthcare facilities on the Navajo Nation are spread out. It's a very um, remote area as well. And so it might take 12 or 14 hours to get to the healthcare center that might have ICU levels of care. Um, also, many of our communities lack running water. So, um, you know, as we've all heard in fighting the pandemic, one of the important things is to, uh, you know, wash your hands frequently um, and use sanitizer. It's not oftentimes possible to get those supplies in a lot of our rural and remote communities. And because of, um, you know, the housing situations in, in a lot of, um, our remote communities. There's intergenerational living, which makes quarantining and social distancing really challenging. Um, and there's also limited access to um, broadband, internet, and technology, um, which again, all of our schools have gone online. So that's an impact on children and their education and their ability to access education or to work from home. Um, and to, you know, so employment rates unemployment rates have also um, continued to climb. There are also, um, there are indigenous communities faced higher rates, as I mentioned before, due to um, colonization and systemic racism. There's a history of historic, unhealed historical trauma, and there are higher rates of diabetes and heart disease. And there are a lot of elders within the communities too, all of which are at high risk higher risk for um, COVID than the general population. So all of the, these things combine to just, um, I guess, contribute to greater inequalities as we face the pandemic. But whenever I talk about, um, I think, the challenges and the obstacles that our Alaska Native population faces and our indigenous populations in general, I always want to mention that I am in, doing my work over these years, I am continually struck by the resiliency and ingenuity of our tribal communities. Um, in Alaska, you know, our, our Alaska Native people have survived in some of the harshest conditions in the world since time immemorial. And so I really think that there are, yes, there are huge obstacles, but I also, and challenges for these communities, but I also want um, to point out the resiliency that exists within these communities and how that presents a really a learning opportunity for all of us as we consider how we move forward during this time. So turning to the second piece of your question, um, how this has particularly impacted our, our project during the during the virus. One of the things that um, we needed to adjust a little bit um, 
is the, the subject matter of the work that we were taking on our classroom modules. To some extent, our project was well suited for this time because it was already, um, we were using distance learning modules and connecting, the project was designed to connect remotely with um, community navigators who are located in, in um, smaller communities that we are not connected to physically. And so it, to some extent that we could just keep moving forward with respect to that. But we did need to change um, course a little bit. First, in one way, we needed to um, respect the priorities of our healthcare partners. Um, they, our healthcare partners, of course, needed to turn their attention and focus dramatically and immediately on preparing for the virus to come to their communities and to make sure that they were as pre prepared as best they could in these circumstances. And so I think that um, some of our work, we needed to take, our legal work needed to take a little bit of a backseat to their preparatory, their steps, the steps they needed to take to prepare the communities for the, the pandemic response. Um, but that gave us an opportunity too, to think about the content that we were, the areas that we were training, um, we hope to train our community navigators. And one of those areas, just as an example, that we sort of switched course a bit, we were already developing um, food stamp and SNAP um, training modules to help um, those in our rural communities know what their rights were to access um, food stamps or SNAP benefits. And um, we have some of the highest rates of food insecurity in our most rural communities. And so um, we were attempting to uh, train community navigators so that they knew what their rights and, uh, and how to access um, food stamp or SNAP benefits would be. Um, when, the, when the laws in the U.S. changed in response to the pandemic to increase unemployment insurance um, during the pandemic and to give an increased boost, we knew that our most rural and remote communities would have a hard time accessing and um, being made aware of and accessing these additional programs. And so we um, started working on uh, distance learning modules that would help um, empower communities in our most remote areas to access this, that additional benefit. So that's just a, a, you know, a couple of examples about how our project has been impacted by the, the pandemic. Great, thank you so much. And I just want to come back to that point that you said that you know, this, the, despite the, the exacerbation of these inequalities and and the issues that it raises, we need to talk about resilience of indigenous communities and in Alaska and and we'll talk about it with Walter around the world, uh, and and we'll get that get to that in the next questions. Um, and and Walter, I think what. What I'd like to ask you is, uh, what do you see as the effects of this pandemic across the world for indigenous communities? And maybe what do you see as different types of effects according to each country's particular context? Do you see certain common patterns that are at work? Yeah, and I think there are some common patterns in, and the first one that we need to, that we need to look at is that separating what are the direct effects of the pandemic on indigenous population and which ones are the effects not related directly to the pandemic but to the contention measures implemented by government and i just want to give you a few examples of the first one uh, the effects related directly related to the pandemic 
in different countries, we can see a higher, uh, a, a higher infection rate on indigenous population because many of them, many of them are seasonal workers or frontline workers or temporary workers that, that had to travel via the, the frontline of work. But also we see that because of issues of structural exclusion and many of them living in, in rural areas, we see that once they become infected, they have a lot, a lot of less access to the needed care. For instance, if before the pandemic, there was already a major gap in terms of, of healthcare facilities and hospital beds, that gap is becoming a very relevant once indigenous families become infected. And as we hear in all the countries around the world and many countries are being affected by a shortage of protective personal equipment, a shortage of, of, of tests, well, we can see that that at the national level, but once you go down to indigenous territories, that shortage is even more serious. For instance, in, in some of the territories that we have been collecting information from in Guatemala and I've seen in other countries, healthcare workers in those territories do not even have one single supply of uh, personal equipment. Tests do not even exist in those territories. So, so this, uh, this global shortage is, is much greater uh, affecting indigenous territories. And also another serious effect for the possibility of implementing strategies for, for self-protection, but also to understanding the transmission of the virus and how it works is that in many countries around the world, we see the problem of government providing information, but not in indigenous languages. We see a big gap in terms of providing information in, in the official language, but then that information is not translated into local indigenous languages. So in many, in many places, not only in Guatemala, but around the world, the, the deficit of information are really, are really crucial and it's, it's affecting not only the possibility of communities developing their own strategies for protection, but also is affecting the, the level of fear in terms of understanding what is the virus, how is this uh, transmitted this virus, and, and how should we protect ourselves. So that's on the side of effects directly related to the pandemic, to, to the pandemic, to the virus. So now we have also effects that are related not directly to the pandemic, but the kind of measurements that the government have been implemented to control the virus. For instance, we can see that most of the measures that government have been implementing around the world are actually thought for urban populations. The, the measures of lockdown, stay at home, and you only go to the supermarket once or twice per day, online schooling, all of that works in urban settings where, where people have access to good connections, where supermarkets are the main, the main source of your food, and also where you can stay at home and continue your, your work, your activity from home. But once we go to indigenous territories and communities, this kind of, uh, of contention measures do not really work at all, and they actually produce many unwanted effects. For instance, in, in, in Guatemala, 
most indigenous communities are small agricultural producers and they depend on the change, sell and buying of produce with the neighboring communities. This is very crucial for the food security and survival. So uh, a lockdown measure that the government had been implementing in which no one can leave the, the community, there is no public transport or any other transport, is directly affecting the livelihood and food security of these communities. So uh, many organizations, including uh, my organization, have been uh, communicating this, the, this to authorities that there should be different missions for different territories because this is really uh, making more vulnerable communities. But again, it's a challenge of trying to communicate uh, anything to authorities in this moment where, where the, the pressure on many authorities responding to the largest size of the population or to, or to the most populated cities, so the large urban areas. Yeah, thank you so much, Walter. And I think that's what what you're pointing is is the same thing as as Nicole is pointing out is that these issues predate. There are issues that predated the pandemic that are just being put into a new light. And and I really want to get into how we how we overcome that. Um, but one thing that we know also from the World Justice Project's 2020 Rule of Law Index and other data is that strong rule of law positively co correlates with better health outcomes. Um, but just when we need it the most, it seems that these critical norms of good governance and human rights are deteriorating around the world. We've seen leaders take the opportunity with the crisis to reinforce their powers, impose new, new laws and restrictions on people. And I wanted to ask you, Nicole, it, your project has such an innovative spin tying legal empowerment to health facilities, but how does the weakening of rule of law in the United States affect that link? Yeah, well, you know, I, I would say, first off, that I think that, you know, our project was designed um, in an attempt really to counter what one piece of the erosion of the rule of law in the U.S. And what I mean by that is, you know, the civil justice gap in the U.S. where we have this civil justice system that was built by lawyers for lawyers, but denies lawyers to 80% of those who would need them to access their rights, is really a fundamentally flawed system from a rule of law perspective. And so I think our project was designed to empower more people to access and use the system. And um, so I guess by, you know, the connection between health and rule of law is, is important to our project, but really, I mean, I guess what I would say that our project was really designed with the idea of trying to address an issue that is really at the heart of um, addressing the inability to enforce for most people in well, I guess I would say they're not even the most marginalized people but within the US um, accessing the civil justice system is really really challenging and hard and difficult for most people to do and that means that there's an under enforcement of most of the civil laws that would protect um, low-income people and so that we need to shift that. We chose to partner with um, our healthcare providers because they had a more robust infrastructure. And through that process also happened to learn that, um, you know, that they had some really innovative solutions to addressing um, poor health 
health outcomes and health inequalities, and we've learned through that process. And one of the things that we learned from our healthcare partners was that it made more sense to involve more people in um, producing good health outcomes, right? Instead of having um, doctors providing all of the healthcare, let's invite more people within the community and train them um, on on issues related to health in an effort to increase public health. And so we sort of want to take that same approach with respect to the law that we would um, work with our communities to help people better understand their rights, know their rights and enforce their rights. And hopefully in that respect, hold our hold more people to account and protect the rule of law. So I, you know, I think, um, I, all that to say is that how is the weakening of the rule of law and the link between our project? You know, it was really designed to address that particular aspect. Yeah, no, that, that that's great. You know, I, I think that's that that's what we saw when you presented your project at the at the World Justice Forum. Is just there there was an issue to begin with, and and you were answering that, and this crisis is just exacerbating that issue and, and making those solutions more needed and more critical. Um, I wanted to ask you, Walter, if you could maybe give us the international perspective of how do you feel that a health, the health of a country's rule of law system reinforces or sometimes might reverse the patterns of discrimination that you pointed out and Nicole pointed out for indigenous communities worldwide? Well, um, as, as, as we know, of, uh, uh, many countries around the world, in their effort to confront the pandemic, they declare state of emergencies. Depending on the, on the legal framework on different countries, but in, in many countries, as a state of emergency, it gives the authority and the power to the executive to, to override many, uh, uh, many of the existing uh, rights of the population and to have the power to, uh, to declare and to allocate funding and, and to implement initiatives. So, so this state of emergencies has been, uh, has been used as a way of abusing power in many countries. For instance, in, in several countries in Latin America, under the state of emergency, the first thing that government did uh, did was to the, the the funding of critical public programs that were aimed for marginalized populations. For instance, in Guatemala, there had been a long negotiation and, and battle to have an initiative to expand healthcare facilities and services for indigenous areas, also to expand bilingual education programs. So all of that is stopped now, and the funding that was allocated for that has, has been moved into other priorities. And, and we know, based on experience, that once this happens, it's, it's not going to be like a, once the lockdown is finished, the money is going to send back. It's going to be a new battle again to, to try to get that priority for allocating the funding. Also, the abuse of power on the state of emergency, we can see in that while using the excuse of the pandemics, uh, governments have redefined what is an essential work and what's, what's an essential services. For instance, in several countries, uh, under the essential services, they included mining and other extractive industries. 
So this meant that although uh, uh, all the industries were stopped, minings were allowed to continue working. In fact, there is evidence that in, in, in Peru, many of the communities, indigenous communities got infected because of the miners continue coming to do the work. And also in other countries, uh, the situation of the minings in these territories were still under legal, uh, on, on, on the legal um, observation, but because of being redefined as an essential services, this, uh, uh, this mine started working. So I'm very concerned about this situation because the level of, of precedent that is going to set for once we come out of the state of emergencies. I'm very concerned that once we go back to try to go back to to uh, to what it was before, then a, a transnational industry may be using the the concept of mining and extractive industries as an essential service for industry to continue challenging the the situation of they expanding in indigenous territories without the proper authorization from, from indigenous communities. So I'm really concerned about what is gonna come out of these uh, abuses that we, have, we are seeing in many countries of the executive power during um, emergency situations. Yeah, thank you. It definitely seems like a, a, a two steps back situation in, in a lot of cases. And, and it's really preoccupying, but I, I wanted to get back to what Nicole pointed out where even though we have an issue that is critical, we, we see a lot of resilience and a lot of, of solution making from indigenous communities. So how do we get out of the current situation that, we, that we're in? And this is for both of you. What are the pathways to a solution that you've experienced in your work? And how can we apply that in the context of, of the COVID-19 crisis? And maybe we can start with you, Nicole. Yeah, so I think I'm, I would say I continue to think, and it's my personal belief that the opportunity in this moment during um, the pandemic is it's given us this opportunity to sort of pause everything and reimagine what a different way of doing things. Um, I think that at least from my perspective, we were so just sort of caught off guard and, um, you know, it's been just such a, a shock to the system that it's required us to sort of rethink and reimagine all of the things that we are doing um, within our justice system. And, and I think that there's an opportunity in that. There's learning in that. And um, I think that there's the opportunity at this moment is to look to other ways of knowing and doing things um, that could make our civil justice system more inclusive and empower more people to be a part of that, which is really important to me and what I think is one of the, the pathways forward. I mean, I continue to think that, you know, within the US system where we require the use of lawyers, which are highly educated and highly resourced intermediaries to, to eke out some form of justice within our civil justice system, is is fundamentally flawed on the level if you're trying to um, deliver justice to a community to make sure that community members feel seen and heard and can um, feel like justice is delivered to them or that the justice system is working for them 
And one of the things that I think um, we could learn at this moment is to think of other means, look to other ways of um, resolving disputes and how that's done in different um, cultural contexts. And our indigenous communities, my experience has been, have strong and rich traditions of resolving disputes within communities and when there's been a breach of uh, a social contract within the community. Um, how how do different um, cultures or different communities come together to repair harmony when when something's happened within the community that causes a disruption? And I think at this, I think the opportunity of this moment is to look at those, to learn from and look at other traditions to see if there might be a way that we, you know, actually. Um, have a, build a system, rework the system that we currently have that's a simpler system and that may provide um, something that feels more like justice to most people and that doesn't require the use of highly educated, highly resourced intermediaries to um, access the system. Absolutely. And Walter, it seems that that's what you're trying to do in, in, in your own work, going from the international scene back to a more local one. Yes, so so I think I, I, I agree with, uh, with Nicole that we are seeing some opportunities for larger advocacy and change because uh, in the case of Guatemala, the issue of access to health, it was traditionally thought as a problem affecting rural population and indigenous population. If, we, if you are a non-indigenous uh, middle class living in the city, it's not really a problem for you. However, with COVID-19, what we are seeing is that no healthcare system really have the capacity to deal with, with the situation because of in many countries, the healthcare system where we have many problems. And we are seeing that urban population, not only the urban poor, but also the urban middle class, they are realizing that it's not possible to have a, a healthcare system that only provides some services for, for some small group of population, that we need a nationwide system. So I think the opportunity that is open up there is the possibility of, of uh, expanding the constituency of citizens, of people that will demand better public services. That is not a problem only of the rural poor, uh, actually, it is a problem of all of us because uh, a piecemeal uh, uh, public systems are not really benefiting anyone. So I see that opportunity. That is going to be our challenge, how to build a narrative that rather than that uh, wanted to come back to what the situation was before, that we build a narrative that, that uh, we need a much larger constituency to strengthen public services. And, and the second opportunity that I see, which is already happening in, in many places, uh, is that indigenous communities, I, I, I totally agree with Nicole, that they, because of their long-standing of marginalization exclusion, they have always been uh, finding ways of solving uh, problems. What we, some of the data that we have collected from, from the Guatemala is showing that in many communities, they have already gone back to very local informal markets that in which instead of using money, they actually just uh, exchanging products so they can go this, this stage in which the food security has been compromised. 
And in this, uh, in the design of these local markets, the, uh, the elder population have been very supportive in explaining how the market used to work before. Very local markets that, would, that did not want to depend on external products because of the problem of, of food security, how, how they worked before uh, 30, 40 years ago, and how they should go back to that situation that we first should produce so all of us can uh, can uh, increase our food security and then we may require some external products but most importantly is try as a community to support all of us in, in our food security so we are seeing already uh, the emerging of those practices that, that that were abandoned because of the last 30 years the emphasis had been on communities, rural communities, poor communities, they should try to produce products for the national, international markets. For instance, moving to produce coffee or produce cotton or whatever the product that we have, a, a important value in international markets. And that would just leave communities producing one single product that it doesn't, it doesn't improve the food security. So this is a very important opportunity going back to the idea of community have to produce the, uh, the food that will first secure that, that they increase the food security and, and starting to challenge this model that we have been implementing for the last 30 years of everything being produced for national and international markets. So I see that as, a, as an important development and I think it's gonna be very relevant to challenge how is it going to look development after COVID-19? Is it still going to continue being a globalized development or are we going to return to locally driven development? Yeah, thank you so much. I think that's definitely something that, that we're seeing everywhere, calling, if people calling for a change in the system. And I think our listeners will be energized by, by the solutions that you both highlighted and knowing that we have two advocates ready to, to make that work happen. Um, so I want to thank you, Nicole and Walter, for joining me today on WJP's Rule of Law Talk and for this enlightening discussion. Uh, it's been great to have you, and I hope our listeners will have takeaways that they can apply in their own work. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. To learn more about WJP's World Justice Challenge and to see highlights of our 2019 winners one year later, visit worldjusticeproject.org forward slash news. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe to Rule of Law Talk to hear more conversations like this one.